When my daughter Megan and I sit down to work a thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle together, I marvel with how ridiculously fast she is at putting a puzzle together. Me? No, I'm not so bright. It takes me a little while to figure out what needs to be done first. I know, I know. Work the edges and move inward. It's still quite overwhelming to see literally a thousand related pieces in this big, undiscernible pile knowing from the outset that they will collectively capture the image on the box in front of us. But fortunately, we have the picture on the box. When it comes to the Bible, what if we had the picture on the box? Hey, it's Andy, and this is the 38th episode of a Biblical Narratives podcast. Biblical Detail historical context that puts you in the action. If we had the picture on the box, the Bible in all of its complexity, its 66 books and its 40 plus authors spanning a time frame of some 1500 years could be better understood. Well, that's what this episode is all about. Today is designed to show you the picture on the box. Leading up to today's episode, We've interrupted our time in Paul and Barnabas' ministry endeavors found in Acts to give attention to the background leading up to their key messages made throughout Acts. Truthfully, I should have spent time here earlier. Better late than never, I guess. Today, we're aiming to cover the Davidic Covenant, a promise of a future king who would sit on the throne of David forever. Our passages are found in 1 Samuel 7 and 1 Chronicles 17. Stick around for the epilogue, as I hope to put this whole puzzle together for you. Well, that's the goal anyway. With that, let's get started. As the town comes to life a short distance away, David awakens in his bedroom chamber. What is that sound, he wonders. Lingering in a warm and comfortable bed, he ruminates over the recent course of events that has brought him to this place. That is the sound of peace. He answers his own question. That is the sound of morning routines felt throughout the city. He looks around and appreciates the large cedar beam supporting the roof above his well-appointed room. Now this is a gorgeous place, he continues to process and pray. Lord, who am I that I would be afforded such luxury, David asks aloud. I've never lived so well. This sure beats sleeping in the field with one eye open. This receives a laugh as it reflects upon a moment when a lioness went after one of his sheep during the night. Lord, I really don't know how I've made it this far. If not a predatory animal, what's been worse has been the armies of kings or the kings themselves bent on destroying me. And yet, here I am, alive and well. Getting out of bed, David moves to the window to take in the city that has rapidly grown since he has come to power. In a moment of euphoric gratitude, he leaves his room to explore around his recently constructed home. Palace, really, he corrects himself. Good morning, my lord, a servant greets David as he tours around the home with a new set of eyes. Good morning, Noga, David replies. Good day so far? Definitely, my lord, Noga responds. Better is one day in your court than anywhere else. David laughs and smiles at this. I'm pretty sure you could do better than this. He points around the large room, maybe a cabin by the beach or among the forests of Lebanon. 
Oh, no, sir, the servant responds. For the first time in my life, my family and I feel safe, and that is a gift we never wish to take for granted. Placing his hands on Noga's shoulders, David nods and smiles. Me neither, Noga. Me neither. Can I get anything for you, sir? Noga asks. Looking out of a window that frames a hill above the palace, David responds. No, I don't think so, he pauses. Wait. About to close the door behind him, Noga stops. Yes, my lord? Yes, David continues to look out of the window at a barren hill with a tent perched atop. There is something. He looks back at his servant and says, Bring me Nathan, please. Right away, sir, Noga says and quickly departs. Come in, David yells from across the room. Entering the room, a gangly and peculiar-looking man says, My lord, you sent for me. Continuing to look out at the hill from the window, David mutters to himself, Why do I get this? And he gets, well, that. I live in a palace while he lives under a curtain. Unable to fully hear the ramblings of a man standing by the window, Nathan calls out, My lord, do you see that? David asks. Come and see. Leaning in to take in David's perspective, Nathan observes the large tent set at the top of the hill. Do you see it? David asks with a level of intensity. Yes, my lord, I I see it, Nathan responds. Now, take a look around this room, David responds. Do you see this? Knowing where this is heading, Nathan responds, Yes, my lord. Nathan, I live better than the God I serve, David responds with exasperation. I live better than God. Pointing towards the hill, he continues, The ark of God, where God manifests his glory and represents the covenant made between God and humanity, sits under a nomad's shelter less than a few hundred yards away while I sit comfortably in my luxurious room made of refined stone and hardy cedar wood. I live like a king, yet the God who made all of this possible lives like like, like a, a nomad. Placing his hands up in an effort to calm the king, Nathan replies with appreciation of David's heart. Okay, yes, I get it. Do what you feel like is the right thing to do. The Lord has been with you, David, and he will continue to be with you. David smiles. Let's take a walk up to the tent, he says, as he begins wrapping his mind around the grand project. I would like to scout out the ground and make preparations immediately. Nathan, a voice softly calls out. Nathan, it calls out again. Stirred from sleep, Nathan props himself up on his bed and looks around at a dark but empty room. Uncertain as to whether the voice was calling him in a dream or in reality, Nathan shakes his head and falls back asleep. Nathan, the voice calls out again. Sitting up in his bed, Nathan realizes this is no dream. Yes, who's there? He gets out of bed to pursue the surroundings of a Spartan room, only to realize that he is alone. Opening his door to the outside, he sees nothing but a few smaller homes like his laying dormant in the middle of the night. In a moment of clarity, he comes back into his room and asks, Lord, did you call me? The voice responds, Yes. Nathan's eyes widen. Lord, I'm sorry I didn't recognize your voice earlier. I'm not used to this sort of thing. Tell my servant David that the Lord has spoken to you, the voice continues. Do you think you will build a house for me? I have never lived in a house. From the moment I delivered Israel out of Egypt to this very day, the tent has always represented my presence, and using a tent has allowed Israel to be nimble, ever ready to move when I decided. 
Do you think I have ever wanted a permanent house? Have I complained about not having a beautiful cedar home built for me to Israel's leaders? Dumbfounded by these words, Nathan wonders how he will broach the subject with such an excited king. The voice continues, Now, go and tell David. My lord, Noga rapidly knocks on the door. What is it? An agitated David yells out. Why are you bothering me so? He looks outside to see a dimly lit pre-dawn sky. It's not even morning yet. A thousand pardons, my lord, Noga enters the room. I don't wish to disturb you, but Nathan has returned and says it's urgent. Shall I send him away? Sighing, David says, wait, let me get dressed and I'll meet him in the reception room. Yes, my lord, Noga responds. Impatiently waiting in the other room, Nathan stands to greet an unawake David who rubs his face. He then looks back at Noga and asks him to bring David some tea. He's going to need it for what I'm about to tell him. Noga's eyes widen and he attends to David's tea. Looking a groggy, though curious, David in the face, Nathan sees the need to get right to his point. The Lord spoke to me last night, he says. In a dream, David finishes Nathan's thoughts. Yeah, that's where things get interesting, Nathan says as he rubs his scalp of his disproportionately large-looking head. I heard a voice, and thinking it must be a dream, I shrugged it off and drifted back to sleep. But the voice spoke again. Nathan grows animated. I propped myself up in my bed and looked around the room, but didn't hear anything. Moving around the room to retell his story, Nathan continues. So, I got up out of bed and looked around, thinking somebody was messing with me. I even went outside my home and walked around my neighborhood to see if anyone else was stirring or awake. Nothing. So I went back into my home, closed the door behind me, and it struck me that maybe it was the Lord calling out. So I asked, Lord, did you call me? Captivated by Nathan's story, David asks, And? The voice responded, Nathan says. He said, Yes. He called out to me, my Lord. So you're talking with God and he's talking back, David says to clarify. Yes, Nathan says with excitement. So, David goes on. So? Nathan responds. Yes, Nathan, David says. Did the voice tell you anything? Anything that might inspire you to come and wake me so early in the morning? Shaking his head at himself for finally understanding what David was getting at, Nathan responds, Oh, yeah, of course. Yes, it's, it's not like I knew what to do. I told the voice I was kind of new with these sort of things. I wasn't sure what to say. Grabbing Nathan by the shoulders, David demands, What did the Lord tell you, Nathan? Please, tell me. Nathan comes to and blurts out what was spoken. Tell my servant David that the Lord has spoken to you. Tell me. Tell me what? David asks. Do you think you will build a house for me? Nathan snaps. Holding on to Nathan's shoulders, David's face betrays a look of confusion. Oh, I, uh, well, he says. Nathan continues. I have never lived in a house from the time I delivered Israel out from Egypt to this very day. I have made good use of the tent, and I have moved Israel from one place to another, making her nimble and responsive to my promptings. Do you think I ever wanted a permanent house? Have I ever complained about not having a beautiful cedar home built for me to Israel's leaders? Crestfallen, David looks at Nathan and sees his plans crumble right in front of him. Seeing David's look, Nathan places his hands on David's shoulders and says, Look at me, my lord. There's more. What? David says with heightened surprise. Having gathered his thoughts, Nathan smiles and continues. 
This is what the Lord of Heaven's armies has declared. I took you from tending sheep in the pasture, and I have selected you to be the leader of my people Israel. Look around you. I have been with you all this time, in your battles, in your near escapes, and in this present time of peace. I have destroyed your enemies before your very eyes. Letting go of Nathan's shoulders, David looks around the room to process what is being said. Oh, you don't want to miss this. Nathan continues as he keeps holding on to the king's shoulders. Wait, what, there's more? David asks. Nathan responds with a wide grin. Oh, we're just getting started, my friend. The Lord wants you to understand that He will make your name as famous as anyone who has ever lived on the earth. And He will provide a homeland for Israel, His children, giving them a secure place where they will never be disturbed. Evil nations will no longer be able to oppress them as they have been doing since day one. The Lord will give you a final rest from your enemies. Holding up his hands for David to not interrupt and keep listening, Nathan continues, Furthermore, the Lord declares that he will make a house for you, a dynasty of kings. For when you die and are buried with your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring, and I will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build a house, a temple for my name, and I will secure his royal throne forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. If he sins, I will correct and discipline him with the rod, like any father would do. But my favor will not be taken from him as I took it from Saul, who I removed from your sight. Your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time, and your throne will be secure forever." Awestruck by this revelation, David steps away from a beaming Nathan and gets lost in his thoughts. I will secure his throne forever, a dynasty of kings. I will be his father, he will be my son. My favor will not be removed. Hiking up a small knoll, David sees the tent that holds the ark perched on top. Turning around at the top of the ridge, he takes in the newly constructed city he has built behind him. Envisioning a future permanent home for the Lord constructed on this very hilltop, David takes in his larger surroundings and marvels at what has been promised. Nearing the tent, David sees a boulder and sits himself upon it. Looking around at the valleys and the larger hills behind them, he beholdens them with new eyes. Lord, who am I? he asks. Why would you consider me, my family? Unsettled, David climbs down from the boulder, walks to the tent's entrance, and enters in. Sitting himself just inside the tent, he voices, Who am I, Sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you would bring us this far? In addition to everything you've already done for us, you now promise your servant a lasting dynasty? Do you deal with everyone this way, Lord? What other God is like you? What other nation on this earth is like Israel? What other nation has been delivered from slavery to become your own people? You have made quite a name for yourself when you performed miracle after miracle and drove out the nations and gods that stood in Israel's way. You made Israel your people forever, and you became their God. Shaking his head in disbelief, David goes on, Lord, I am your servant. Please, do as you promised concerning me and my family. 
Confirm it as a promise that will last forever, and may your name be praised among all of the nations of the world for eternity. Lord, I boldly pray this, only because you have spoken it as a promise to your servant. May you continue to bless this promise forever. We're going to stop here for today. What a promise, right? God's promise to David here in 2 Samuel 7 and 1 Chronicles 17 places a magnifying glass to the Genesis 49 passage we covered a few weeks back. You can reference this in the Nobody Saw This Coming podcast and blog. In Genesis 49-12, the promise and prophetic utterance made from a dying man to one of his key sons, that is, from Jacob, or otherwise known as Israel, to Judah, his son, some 4,000 years ago, would later be explained in much more detail to King David here in this passage. This promise made to David would become known as the Davidic Covenant. The promise of a permanent dynasty in what has offered hope of a returning king who will permanently make things right worldwide. This promise has shaped Judaism and Christianity alike, in that both have placed a hope in a returning king, a chosen one of God, who will refashion the earth and all of its geopolitical, religious, and national structures as we know them. Everything changes with the promised king, and it all started in Genesis 49, and is further explained here in 1 Samuel 7 and 1 Chronicles 17. When God sent prophet after prophet to warn Israel against its tendency to stray away from him, he also offers hope to those who return to him, to those who seek him out and want what he wants. But Israel struggled greatly in this area, and the Davidic dynasty of kings collapsed upon the invasion of Babylon. For many, this was enough to write God off as one who has not made good on his promises. However, for those familiar with the Mosaic Covenant, or the Law of Moses, which was an agreement made between God and his people some 300 years before this promise was made to David, they understood that the consequences for straying away from God as a people would result in exile and oppression from foreign nations. See Deuteronomy chapters 28-30. through Those who knew the law of Moses or listened to the warnings of the dozens of prophets understood they were undergoing divine discipline. See Psalm 137, the whole book of Lamentations, Nehemiah 1, 5-10, and many, many other passages. They knew they deserved the Lord's discipline and they wanted to make things right. So, God allowed them to return to Israel. However, there would be no king, nobody to sit on David's throne. Even today, there is nobody to sit on David's throne. Yet, this is the hope for Jews and Christ followers alike even today, that God's chosen promised servant king will sit on the throne forever. You've heard of the Magi, those from the east who saw a peculiar star and how it led them to worship in Bethlehem, right? They were coming to worship the chosen one of God who would sit on David's throne. Herod the Great knew who they were looking for, which is why he insisted on slaughtering a number of toddlers and infants under the age of two in the surrounding area of Bethlehem. If the counselors of these Persian and Parthian kings were going to great lengths to pay tribute to this infant Davidic king, Herod the Great full well knew the threat that would play against his own dynastic ambitions. 
He knew the people he governed, primarily Jews, would revolt against him and place this long-promised king on the throne instead. Last week, we touched on the ministry of John the Baptizer, who called Israel back to the alignment with the conditions of the Mosaic Covenant, which kind of go like this. If you obey, you'll be blessed. If you disobey, you will undergo God's discipline. It was very simple. That has been the mantra of the law of Moses for thousands of years. So John the baptizer was calling Israel to get right with God in preparation of the coming king. John's ministry passion was to prepare Israel for the coming king who would establish the long-awaited promised covenant God made with David. This coming king was none other than God's son who would become a human being born of a virgin and would assume his rightful permanent place on the throne of David. Two weeks ago, we covered the triumphal entry, which had most of Judea in a state of euphoria. When Jesus came riding in on a lowly donkey's colt, all of Israel's commoners rightfully understood that this was the moment where God would usher in the promised Messiah who would sit on the throne of David forever. Even John the baptizer had similar expectations. So everybody is expecting the Davidic king to come to pass. Things, though, they get a little complicated from here. The Jewish leaders did not and still do not believe that Jesus was the promised Davidic king. They didn't train him, and he didn't fit their expectations, even though he produced a number of miraculous signs right in front of them. Instead of believing him as the Davidic king, they wrote him off as a fraud, even Satan incarnate. We saw a glimpse of this in our Missed It Whoops podcast a few weeks back. When this promised chosen one of God and king who would sit on David's throne forever was coronated by the commoners on one day and then crucified only a week later? I mean, what kind of chosen one of God who is destined for the eternal throne of David dies? You can imagine the confusion amongst the Jewish commoners, especially his own disciples who had similar expectations. The Jewish leaders no doubt wiped their hands and felt quite vindicated after dispensing with this fraud, this son of Satan, thinking they were doing their people a favor. So what changed everything? Well, resurrection, of course. When God raised Jesus from the dead, this not only restored the hope among his disciples and all of the Jewish commoners, it created a whole new set of issues for those in leadership. Yet God did not place his resurrected chosen one on the eternal throne of David. Not yet, anyways. So the big question here is, drumroll please, why? Why didn't God take this resurrected king, who is now capable of being that eternal ruler who sits on David's throne forever, and place him on the throne of David, ruling right away from Jerusalem? Believe it or not, This is perhaps one of the biggest gestures of God's mercy to all of humanity over all kind. Think about it this way. If God placed the raised eternal king on David's throne right after his resurrection, humanity would have been destroyed, and the eternal Davidic king wouldn't have many subjects to rule over. Furthermore, the promised new covenant, something we've talked about at length in a number of these podcasts, would not have had the time to take root and redeem God's future kingdom inhabitants. 
Without the new covenant in place, first, to transform the hearts of those who seek out God and His chosen one, Jesus, God would have a much bigger problem, a people who do not want what He wants. The kingdom of heaven with God's chosen one on the throne of David would be filled only with those who want what God wants. To want what God wants is something only the Holy Spirit can accomplish within us. It requires a work of God, a supernatural work of God within us to change our hearts. Only through the permanent forgiveness of sins and replaced heart, which is what the new covenant is all about, can we dwell in the presence of the future God King who will sit on David's eternal throne. This is why Jesus died on our behalf as the perfect substitutionary sacrifice of God. God used Jesus' death to bring about the Holy Spirit who could unleash the new covenant promises to change all who seek after Jesus. The eternal king will take his seat on the eternal Davidic throne once God is happy with the number of those who have been redeemed by the Holy Spirit and have had their hearts changed to want what God wants. I get it. There's a lot going on here, right? Andy, so what's the big picture on the box then? The best way I can describe it is as follows. First of all, understand that God has a primary objective. He has a mission. And the mission of God is to do this. It's to accomplish the three R's. Restore, redeem, replace. I'm going to say that again. Restore, redeem, replace. God's mission is to first restore his kingdom. Out from the false kingdom of Satan, where God will place the rightful and eternal heir on the throne of David once and for all. Second, redeem his people. Out from the destructive clutches found throughout the false kingdom of Satan and really the world that we know. He will transfer them into his restored kingdom when they seek him out and believe upon his chosen king who will sit on David's throne. And third, something has to happen to the people themselves. They need not only redemption, but they need changed hearts. That's the third part. He needs to replace their hearts. Remember, restore, redeem, replace. By replacing their hearts by the Holy Spirit who accomplishes the promises made in the new covenant, namely the permanent forgiveness of sin and new softened hearts that reflect the heart of God. God's goal in all this is to have us want what he wants, but he has to supernaturally change us from the inside out to begin to understand all this and desire it. Do you see it? God is about the mission of restoring his kingdom through the redemption of his people by replacing their hearts. That is the picture on the box. Well, that's it for now. I hope this has helped you see the mission of God, and I hope this provides a foundation for your own future as well. May you seek God's chosen one out as the rightful king who will at some point in time, when God is ready for this, come back to rule us.